think a lot about my parents when I talk about education. And the interesting thing about my mom and dad is that they actually did not have much of a formal education. Uh, my dad went to grade two and he had to go off and fight in the Greek Civil War. And my mom had a grade six education. But to understand that they didn't have much of an education, but they are absolutely incredible learners. And there are so many things that I learned from them as a child that I still implement to this day that still have a huge impact on what I do in education. And I think for me, one of the biggest things is really how do we make those around us better? How do we actually elevate those that we connect with? I watched my parents for years, own a restaurant, connect with people, and they always left feeling better when, you know, after that interaction. And I think that's a really important aspect of what we do in education. Like when the kids enter our classrooms, do they leave better than when they started? And it's the same thing with our staff. Having this conversation with Superintendent John Cabral from Taunton Schools, uh, he really exemplifies this idea, not only in his focus on what he does, but where he learned it from, from his parents who have a very similar immigrant story to my parents. And I think those stories are really important and it honors, uh, you know, my family's history, his family's history. But he reminded me about the importance of elevating those that we connect with and how he learned that from his parents. And he has so many great stories about some of the things that didn't work this school year, uh, some of the things that, you know, he could have been better at, you know, not only in an educational sense, but in a personal sense, which are very closely linked. But he shares some of the things that he hopes as he goes forward. And it was a great conversation. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome back to another episode of the Innovators Mindset Podcast. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Innovators Mindset Podcast. I am very blessed today to have uh, Superintendent John Cabral uh, joining me today on the podcast. And I really wanted to kind of hear, uh, we're at the end of the 2020-21 school year. That's a lot of 20s. Uh, and I just kind of wanted to hear, you know, like just some of the, the positives, some of the struggles that you had at a school system. And I, I've known John for this past uh, year or so. We've had great connections. I've connected with many of his staff who are absolutely wonderful. Many of them actually have emailed me, uh, reached out to me. I've connected with many, uh, some of your board as well, which has been really cool. And uh, one of the things that I can tell you about John that I think is really powerful is, uh, and why I wanted him to have on the podcast is he's really focused on relationships and really connecting with people, serving them. Now I know he's a superintendent, so I'm sure not every teacher in your school district, because, you know, I always say this and people don't like it. No matter how good you are at your job, somebody hates you. So that is one of the, you know, like, but from my interactions, from what I've seen, um, I've been really amazed by you uh, and what you're doing and really his focus on elevating people and really kind of uh, sharing uh, how do we connect and when our kids come to our classrooms, when our teachers are in our systems, when we work with our staff, how do they actually leave better than when they started? And that's one thing I really appreciate you about you, John. And it's why I liked, I wanted to have you on the podcast. So John, if you could just kind of introduce yourself, tell a little bit about your journey in education and how you got to where you're at now. Thank you. Thank you, George. Um, yeah, it's, I'm, I'm going to go way back, George. I'm going to go way back. So yeah. my family immigrated to the United States in 1975 from the Azores Islands, which is located in the Atlantic Ocean. Uh, so I've been a product of the public education uh, throughout my entire life. So when I entered uh, public education, 
even though I was fluent in English, I was placed in an English language learner program. So I was in a bilingual program when I first came to this, when I first started school in, in, in this country. Uh, for some, because I think because I was speaking English and I'm only thinking back, uh, then I was placed in partial special education, back into bilingual, back into special education. So I was always kind of bouncing around back and forth up until about third grade when I, when I always joke and said when they finally left me alone. You know, when they finally left me alone and, and let me uh, just stay in class, be with the, be mainstream, be around my peers and uh, be around educa educators, that's when I really started to uh, kind of hit my stride in education as a, as a learner. So elementary school was outside of the being bounced around between a couple different programs. Um, was it was a good experience? Middle school, high school. I went to a very large high school. Uh, at the time, I believe it was 3,300 kids uh, in the high school. And during that time in high school, I knew I wanted to go to college. Uh, the problem back then was both my parents did not speak English. Both my parents. Uh, were mill workers, uh, unskilled labor, so we weren't making a lot of money at the time. So I, I vividly remember my senior year in high school. It was probably sometime in the fall. My father, very, very proud, told me that he had a job lined up for me at Quaker Fabric. And I remember looking at my dad and saying, Dad, that's great and I appreciate that, but I, I want to go to college. And I remember my father being a little deflated because he, had, he was a very proud mill worker. Uh, you know, provided for his family, bought us a home, you know, put food on the table. You know, George, I mean, your parents went through a similar story. So we was kind of deflated that I didn't want to kind of get into the family business, so to speak. But he also understood, the, I think he started to understand the importance of education. And I think he knew the importance of education, but I think he was scared to death of how to pay for it. Especially right. knowing that at the time, I mean, they were just barely scraping enough to pay for the house, you know, put clothes on our, on our back and give us the minimal that we needed. So I was lucky in the sense that I had some great mentors uh, in education who helped me navigate the college process. And college was by chance. College was really by chance. It really was, it was something I wanted to do. I didn't know where I was going. So I, I, was, at a, I was at a New Year's Eve party with one of my former teammates. It was at one of the Portuguese clubs. I'm sure you must have like those Greek clubs where you get together. Yeah, so it was New, Year, it was New Year's Eve, we're at the, we're at the club. Yeah, celebrating New Year's, and I was talking to my friend Rick's brother, Louis. Louis, very similar story to ours. Louis came over when he was 18, spent one year in Fall River, then he ended up in Rockford, Illinois, playing soccer in Rockford. So Louis and I start chatting, and he's like, would you think about, would you consider coming out to Benedictine University and playing soccer? And I was, first question, how much? <laughs> how much does it cost? And when he told me it was about fifteen to 20000 a year, I'm like, I, my parents can't afford that. Uh, I mean, I could. I think my parents could barely afford community college at that time. So when I spoke with Louie and he was explaining, what about financial aid? What do your parents do for work? And when I explained what my parents did for work and their income levels, he's like, you should easily qualify for uh, enough financial aid. And between financial aid and scholarships, you should be able to attend Benedictine University. And let me tell you, um, let me tell you what, inexperience to this day. Uh, Benedictine University is located about 40 minutes south of Chicago, outside of Cicero, Illinois. And talk about a melting pot. That was the first time I, I had lamb, George. Uh, a lot of my teammates were Greek. 
was gonna uh, say it must have been ground Greek. Yeah, a lot, well, and this is what I, and this is what I loved about the college experience, and especially being a soccer player. Everybody on the team came from a different country, or everybody had roots in another country, or our family came over from another country. So we were a very very tight knit group. We would eat breakfast together, lunch together, dinner together, you no know, study together. We were a very tight group, but we could also relate to each other. Now, we knew what our families were doing to, to scrap and struggle to put us through college. So we weren't, we weren't going to mess around with that opportunity. And we also knew that this was an opportunity. I mean, blessed to play soccer for four years, but knowing that I was going to get a quality education from a very well-known school that was going to also put me on the path to be able to provide for myself, mm -hmm. to be able to provide for my family, and, and now be able to give my children the opportunities that I was not able to have and then and then some. So um, just I, I can't complain. I've been blessed throughout elementary, middle school, high school and university to be surrounded by some amazing adults, amazing adults who always put others first. And one, one of the things that I'm always reminded of or I like to remind myself is being a servant leader. And I think about Jimmy Conrad, who was uh, the, the senior captain at Benedictine University, Jim was a tremendous soccer player, six foot three. I mean, he was had a full ride to Bowling Green, started on a team that made the national tournament. For, for whatever reasons, Jim, like, you know what? I'm not cut out for this. I want to go to a smaller school and focus on my studies. What a, what a leader. What a leader. Because uh, you think back to maybe your high school playing days or you think back to maybe if you were able to play in college. A lot of times the upperclassmen weren't so nice to the underclassmen. <laughs> and, and Jim right. figured out, Jim figured out, or Jim always had a message that really permeated throughout the whole the entire team. And as I rose through the ranks, that was something that I was always mindful of. Jim always said that we are only as strong as our weakest players. Mm -hmm. And Jim always reminded that our weakest players could be seniors, our weakest players could be freshmen. So he treated everyone on the team as if we were all equals. We were not freshmen, we were not seniors, we were the Benedictine University soccer team. And I, I really think about Jim's leadership because here's a kid who's an All-American in high school, scholarship to Bowling Green, to be that humble and to be that modest and, and to really lead, to really lead. And I had classes with Jim, um, he, he had your back no, no matter what. And he always put the needs of others first. So, Again, as a as a teacher and as a leader, and I'm I'm sitting behind my my wall, you know, Simon Sinek, you no, know, start with start with your why or start with yeah. why. And and really I think back about what is our why. And this is why I think I you when I first heard you speak, we resonated. Mm -hmm. Was I got a clear sense of your why and your background, and it really clicked with me. I, I felt like you under I understood where you came from, I understood where your parents came from. And I understand why your family and why you value education as much as you do. So as much as the X's and O's are important, don't get me wrong. X's and O's are very important. ABC's are very important. But those relationship pieces, that's going to help you through your schooling. It's going to help you post-secondary. And it's going to help you in the workplace. So take advantage of all those lessons. Yeah. And the, the thing, John, the thing that, you know, when I'm listening to your, your story, um, and I think the whole... The, the immigrant experience, right? And our parents coming here, uh, us growing up. And, uh, you know, I, I'm really proud of my Greek heritage. I'm really proud of, uh, you know, 
growing up that way. And it's because of what my parents instilled in me. And I look at like what my mom and dad did for me and sacrificed for myself, my siblings to be able to do what I'm doing today. And they instilled in me this idea that your job is to ensure that things are better for your own kids, right? right. Like whatever yeah. you, whatever we gave you. And that's what they did for me, right? Like they, I had uh, so much of an easier time than my parents did because my parents made sure of that, right? And it wasn't, we were like, you know, rich and had all this disposable income or things like that. But I think they instilled in me a lot of things that I take into being an administrator, being an educator, the importance of relationships. Like I always compare how they ran their restaurant to how I ran my school and what I learned from that experience. And so I, I think the the pride that you have when you talk about your family is, is something that resonates with me because it shows that you don't need formal education uh, to be a very intelligent person. You don't need uh, there's a lot of things that we can learn from people that maybe didn't have the same path in education because let's be honest, they didn't have the opportunity that we did. And the reason we had that opportunity is because of our families, because of our parents. And so I'm, I'm just, I'm curious about this. Like, what do you see um, in your work today that you think is influenced by your, your parents uh, and their immigrant story? Like, what are some things that you look at that you do that you're like, yeah, this, this is what my parents instilled in me. Like, what are some of those things? Yeah. It's funny that you say that. Cause I was just, I had a conversation with my mom the other day, mm-hmm. man, I, I taught my mom how to FaceTime George. Awesome. <laughs> I mean, that's a podcast in itself, <laughs> but, but what, I, what, what, but what I found was that my conversations with my mom are longer when I FaceTime with her than yeah. when I call her on the phone. Yeah. But I was thinking to myself, is my mom only had a sixth grade education back in the years of us. My father was a fourth grade education uh, because he had to go work to support the family. And my mom's situation was different because she was a woman. And I kept thinking to myself, is if my mom had the opportunity to be educated the way I was, she would have been a great leader. Mm-hmm. She's no nonsense. She tells it like it is. She's honest. She's sincere. She'll give you the shirt off her back. Mm-hmm. You know, and she works, she works very, very hard. And I, I'd like to think that I have some of those attributes mm-hmm. of my mother. And I, and I believe I exhibit those, or at least I want to exhibit those every day that I come to work. And, and she was a mill worker for 30 plus years. Mm-hmm. Um, really, really, I, I cannot remember my parents, probably like you, taking a sick day. Right. Right. With my father. He was a very soft spoken leader. He led more by example. Mm-hmm. When he did speak, you know, people listened and it took a lot. And I, I think I gained my, I have my father's patience and my mother's impatience. <laughs> my, my father was a very patient, patient, patient man. And it took a lot. It, it took a lot to upset him. And if you upset my father, then nine out of 10 times you will. <laughs> you were probably in the wrong right, <laughs> so, right. so to speak so I, i'd like to think that i'm a i'm a, I'm a patient uh, mm-hmm. you know my parents are both good listeners uh, and i think part of doing the work that we do george you, you got to be a good listener it's one thing to be hearing to to be listening but are you hearing people right. when, when they're talking so and again i think it's mostly that work ethic and also just the fact that i think i get my father's innovation uh, being innovative mind, he worked in the mill and he was always being recognized for being efficient, 
and for coming up with little, 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 always tinkering and making things and creating things to make the workflow more efficient as a machine operator. And, and my mother, my mother is just, you know, she's just a hard, honest worker. Yeah. And she was, and the other piece that I think I get from both my parents and my mother was reminding me of this the other day, when times were tough in the, in the mill where she worked, my mother was a seamstress and she would, if her hours were cut, can I clean bathrooms? Can I sweep floors? What can I do to make sure that I'm getting my full pay every week? Because any job is not above me and I would never ask someone to do something I wouldn't do myself. And I've always felt, um, I've always felt that as a leader, that if I'm asking you to do something, it's because I would do it myself. Well, that, that's a, that to me, like when you talk about that, that's something that really instilled in me is that my parents taught me that you find opportunity. You don't wait for opportunity to find you because it's not because other people are looking for it and really taking advantage of those opportunities, uh, taking advantage. And I would actually say um, your mom was a great leader because the whole purpose of leadership is to develop great leaders. And that's what you are today. Right. And I think those those uh, qualities are obviously and I'm great that they're, you know, your mom's influenced you with that. There's one thing that you said, and I, I want to share like a, a really quick story, because I think it's a really important one about your dad, uh, not saying much, but when he, when he did people <laughs> listen, because there's, I, I always share this story and I think it's really powerful. Um, you know, I'm really into basketball. I don't know if you know this about me, but I refed very high level basketball for several years. And then I basically really got into speaking and things like that. And I had to choose, like, am I going to continue on the path? And I was actually doing like college basketball, things like that. And I said, you know what? I'd, I'd rather speak because more people are cheering me in those spaces, right? I, I'm getting booed like 100% of the time by 50% of the people. And we would always do these, we would always do these uh, conversations with the referees, um, like before the game, like, hey, you know, let's talk about the teams. What do we know about them? What do we know about the coaches? And the coaches, we always had to know about the coaches because, you know, some of them have big tempers, you know, whatever. And uh, like, I just, I, there's this one game and basically it was like the, the exact opposite. There is this guy who coached and he just non-stop yelled at you just all of the time was incredibly annoying. And you know what you did as a referee? You just didn't listen to him because like he's complaining about everything. So you just don't trust his opinion. And I actually think it's a really important thing is that, you know, when, when a lot of people, I, all I hear them is complaining about stuff. I just tune them out. I am like, yeah, I don't, I really don't care what you have to say because everything is, is awful. And then I remember this one time, I'm not saying things aren't bad. Right. But right. here's the adverse in the same game. We had this coach and I remember saying, and I remember, um, my, the referee that I was, you know, doing the game with, who was much more senior than me. And I'm not meaning older. I mean, had much more experienced. He said, this guy doesn't say much. If he says something to you, though, you probably did something wrong. <laughs> Just be aware. Just be aware of that. He won't say anything to you unless, and like, and like, I, to be honest, yeah, like I probably reffed him 10 times and maybe heard two things. And when those two things I listened and I, I am very cognizant of that is that, Hey, like I don't need to be speaking all the time, but when I do speak, does it matter what I have to say? Right. And what am I pointing out? And I think. This is like, there's a lot of that we can learn, you know, from our families. I think it's just something I wanted to share because I think it's probably pertinent to a lot of um, maybe what some people are going through because we spend a lot of attention 
on people that just are nonstop on the sideline. And then we don't pay attention to the, the person that actually, you know, maybe, you know, once in a while speaks up and, you know, they have good intentions. They know they're well-versed in their stuff and, you know, they're, they're, they're just trying to do the right thing, not necessarily just be in your face all the time. So I just want to share that. Cause you know, when you shared about your dad, that's something that really stuck in my mind. Uh, one of the reasons I want to have you on John uh, as a superintendent, uh, I just kind of want to hear about your year. I want to hear about the year in your school. What was like, maybe like, maybe we'll start with this. Like what was one of the hardest things that you had to go through this year? I think one of the hardest things I had to go through this year, personally or educationally or both. <laughs> well, Hey, you know what, whatever, whatever. Cause I think, I think it's, I, I love talking about the personal side because if we don't think the personal side has an impact on what we do as educators, we're, you know, it's, we're probably crazy. Yeah. It, it the, the work, the work, yeah. The work is real, George. Yeah. Um, the work is real. I, I would say that the, probably the, the most difficult piece or the most difficult time was when I felt I wasn't spending enough quality time. Cause I, I mean, I, I got two kids in the school system too. The two kids in the school system I work in. So where, where I felt probably at my lowest during the pandemic to be real, real and vulnerable mm -hmm. was when I felt I wasn't given the time or wasn't putting in the time at home to support my wife and both my daughters. That was probably the time where I felt the lowest, but I also knew that I had 8,000 kids in the Taunton public schools, uh, 1300 employees, you know, and my leadership team, we're one of, I'm one of six and the leadership team plus 12 principals. And, and you no, know, we had a lot of work to do in a, in a, in a medium sized urban school system. So knowing that I, we were spending countless hours in the office uh, on a daily basis, you know, making some very, very tough decisions, putting in the work and then having to go home mm -hmm. on the phone, on Zooms, uh, putting in the putting in the work on the weekends. Uh, I, I remember on Sundays, my I mean, Sundays last spring around this time, my, my wife and my daughters, they're, they're outside with the neighbors, you know, just enjoying the weather, enjoying time. And we're trying to figure out, you know, how we're going to get packets home to kids, how we're going to feed kids, uh, where we're impact bargaining with our six unions to make sure that you know, we provide them with a safe working environment, that they have the resources to work, there was a lot of personal sacrifice. And I, I knew that if I was feeling this way, I knew my leadership team was feeling just as bad because I was putting a lot of heavy demands on them. Right. I knew my principals were feeling the stress. And I also know the stress was, you know, was on our teachers and was also tricking down to the parents. So that was probably the, the hottest and probably the lowest time. Um, and I guess during, if you're gonna ask during the pandemic school related, mm -hmm. I, just, I just really wish we, we could have done more. I, I would just leave it at that. I just wish we could have done more. I wish we uh, could have had a more robust remote and hybrid platform, which I think, you know, considering what we did and the resources that we put in the hands of our classrooms and the, I thought, I thought we did a very good job. I thought we were very, you'd be proud, Judd. We were pretty innovative as far as, as, as far as the work that we did. And then, as, and then following the data, as far as being able to stay open, and not close looking at the data. So mm -hmm. we, we started, we did a phased in hybrid where we started remote. And the reason we started remote was to give our, all our kids, we were not a one-to-one -one district. One-to-one -one district meaning not every student in the top public schools had a device, had a Chromebook or a laptop, right? And all our teachers did not have devices. 
So we were, we had a very robust small group instruction model at the elementary and middle school. Our high school kids were more equipped to go remote. In some of our middle schools were equipped to go remote. At the elementary and pre-K level, we were not ready to go remote. So we went with a phased in hybrid plan where we went the first six weeks purely remote with teachers teaching from the classroom. And part of that strategy was to get them equipped and get them well-versed in using the technology, using the different platforms, using the different apps that we had purchased and put together for them. So that was what the first six weeks were for. And then we transitioned to hybrid once everyone had that foundation. You know, so we set the foundation, slow to go fast. So once everyone had the foundation and how the remote piece works, the in-person piece is what teachers do natural. So by having given them that time to grow and learn as professionals, because you said it, we were all first-year teachers again. Yeah. We were taking our paper and pencil documents, digitizing them or converting them into digital documents, and then teaching them off a 13-inch screen. <laughs> so, so when we and then so, and then we transitioned to our in-person plan, uh, five days a week. Uh, and we've been in person since, uh, I believe we've been in person since April 5th. So we were able to get the last two and a half months uh, of in-person, but it, it's been a challenge. I mean, like like I just said, 13 inch monitor trying to teach a class of 30. Right. So we, inv we invested in technology. We, we purchased three in one uh, poly cameras, which track the teacher. So the teacher could have more of that natural feeling of teaching from the front of the classroom while the camera tracked them with the, with the speaker right. so the kids could hear at home. And then with the um, speaker, so the teacher could hear what the kids are saying at home nice and clear. We purchased Promethium boards for all our elementary and all our middle school classrooms. So the teachers could see the students that are at home and see the kids that are in person and use all the apps on a 55 inch monitor versus a 13 inch uh, Chromebook. And then for our, for our high school teachers who had kids in person and remote, we gave them all the, all the tools except the Promethium boards because as they were more equipped to use the technology, but we provided them with 42 inch monitors so that they could see the kids at home and see the kids in person simultaneously versus always being focused on the, on their Chromebook. So, and we, we tried to be innovative, George. I think you'd yeah. be proud of us. Um, I but am. again, I, I, am. I, 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 wish, I doing incredible things. I wish, I wish we could have done more. Uh, we fed all, we fed our kids. We fed all our kids. I mean, I think to date, between the pandemic and in person, we've served over six hundred thousand meals. So I know, like, I know. it's interesting to listen to you, and I don't know. It's kind of interesting to listen to your two answers, and I think this is like I had a little light bulb moment as I'm listening to you, because you first of all talked about how much you did, how it pulled you away from home, right? And I, I actually talked about like basically March 2020. Um, I went from being on the road all the time to always being home but it took me a few months to be present, right? Like I was home, but right. being present is different and I'm still working on that, still trying to get better. But then also we have this inclination to say like, but we should have done more for their students, right? And it's like, hey, like I'm having this issue where I want to be, you know, be more present, but then I'm also struggling with this notion that I feel I'm, I just never can do enough. And I, 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 I think that for me, um, what I've really learned and I hope, and I, and I know, and I know like this is a constant struggle. You cannot help people 
if you are in a bad place personally, you, you can't, like at the, you might be able for a bit. It's, but it always catches up to you. And when it catches up, it's like, I remember just giving everything to my staff, always being there. And then leads to like a mental breakdown. I have to take like a month off of work because I just, you know, I just can't handle it anymore. And so we're, we're in education. We're so willing to give everything to others yet. We are just, we're end up being depleted and it leads to a bad space sometimes. And it's like interesting because you're like, you're like, I can hear the struggle, right? Like you're like, Hey, I should have been more present. I should have done this, but I also could should have done more. I should have done this. It's like, well, you gotta, you like, you can't do both all at the same time. Right. And it's kind of like, like, where do we, where do we take that? So it's kind of interesting to hear that. And so I think, you know, pointing out, cause I'm I, like, I wish I could just say like, Hey, do this for X amount of time, do this for X amount of time. you all be good. It's a constant struggle in education. But I think um, one of the things that I noticed about what um, you've done in your district and uh, just having the opportunity to work with them, you're really trying to honor um, the the incredible work that your teachers have done. You're trying to honor them with time, honor them, you know, with, with those good moments, because I, I know that you're doing this, but I'm going to give you this advice. I'm going to give you this advice, John. All right, George. You have to take care of yourself, my friend. You know this because at the end of the day, you won't be able to take care of those, those that staff or those kids, right? And that's the thing. And I and like anyone else who's listening, this is probably you too right now. So it's just something to think about, right? And I know it's there's there there's never a time in education where you're just done. You're like, oh, I finished everything, and I, like you always you always have something to do. So like just understand that and whatever. Just back. And I'm I'm maybe giving this pep talk to myself a little bit because I get caught in this too, right? Yeah. Um. John, you've had, um, you, we've had lots of conversations you've done. A, your staff has done a great job. And I know that, um, I know you, you don't take credit for that at all, but like if your staff's doing a great job, you've done uh, a wonderful job, obviously supporting them as you go into the next school year, and this is going to be the last question I ask you, uh, about this stuff. But when you, when you go into the next school year, what do you see that you'll be better at because of this, this, the 20. 21 school year. Wow. I mean, we're so focused on accelerated learning and student learning loss in our summer programs. What do I think we'll be better at? Yeah. I, I think what, I think what we all learned, I think what we all learned is that change can happen mm -hmm. in education. Change has always been slow mm -hmm. and we learned in the pandemic. That, I mean, one of my superintendent colleagues said that we, we were building a plane at 35,000 feet while flying it. Mm -hmm. So I think what, one of the things that we'll learn and one of the things that I'll remind people is that when they say something can't be done, it, it can be done. Mm -hmm. I think one of the things we learned is that we're going to, that one of the things that I learned is you no, know, our kids, our kids have, one of the things that I learned throughout this whole time is the voice of our students, the value, even more so than before the voice of our students. And I also think what we learned, and I, I think about one of my one of my teachers who had to deliver uh, packets and materials to one of her students who, who, who uh, you know, didn't have the best home life, the best home condition, mm -hmm. is that I think what she took away was she didn't realize you know, the different needs of mm -hmm. the kids in our classroom. So I think what we'll learn and do a better job of is not assuming, not assuming that our kids all come from like environments, mm -hmm. not assuming that our kids all had the same upbringing that we had, 
not assuming that all our kids you know, have a mom and dad who can read to them at home or help them with their homework. I mean, I, I think we're gonna learn to be even more student-centered than we were before. I, I also think that we're gonna be much more better when it comes to innovation. As far as being a one-to-one -one district, our kids are light years ahead of us right. um, when it comes to utilizing this technology. And I am so proud, so proud of the work our teachers put in to get acclimated and to learn this new technology. I mean, I have I have a teacher who's been in this in this work for over 50 years, and he embraced it and he figured it out and he made it work. Mm -hmm. So if a veteran teacher or a seasoned teacher with 50 years of experience can figure out how to make this work and educate and connect and reach with your kids, then there's no reason why we can't do that on a more regular basis or as needed. So I think we're going to be a better we're going to be better at connecting and relating to our kids. I'm very excited about what the future of education looks like mm -hmm. at the high school level, you know, for dual enrollment, uh, for early early college experiences. Uh, I think a lot of our kids will be able to attend university or attend colleges uh, asynchronously, you know, or I mean, wouldn't it be wild, George, someday, if think about senior year, George Kuros in Canada, right, takes, instead of going to his A block or his first period class in a brick and mortar classroom, yeah. he attends that class at home asynchronously, right, he does his coursework and then goes to class for brick and mortar, for, mm -hmm. and then has his lunch and then yeah. maybe the last yeah. few blocks of the day that student goes out to an internship and gets that real hands-on experience so i think what we're going to see maybe not next year maybe not the year after but i think it's going to come is we're going to see this shift where it's going to be more personalized learning mm -hmm. which really excites me and i think gets to re being again student-centered when you talked about this, one of the things that you said, uh, you said addressing some of the learning loss, right? And what's interesting is that when you said that, then you talked about all the stuff that your your students learned and taught you. Then you talked about all the stuff that um, your teachers have done to do incredible things. And I think that when, I think to kind of put some perspective, when I hear the term learning loss, um, there's things that, yeah, maybe kids weren't able to do A, B, and C within the school curriculum, right? Because we didn't focus on that. We didn't have as much time in curriculum, but then why are we not focusing on all the other outside things, the curriculum that, you know, students did, our staff did. And I think that we've seen that there's been incredible gains this year, but just maybe not necessarily with school curriculum, but, but kids have learned to adapt. Um, teachers have learned to shift and do some really incredible things. We've, I've watched leaders saying like, Hey, my, my teachers actually are willing to embrace change. Uh, maybe I haven't been delivering it the best before, and maybe I need to address what I'm doing. So I think there's been so much gained, um, you know, from this too. And I'm not just trying to say that to, you know, make people feel comfortable, but you just gave great examples of like, Hey, this teacher did this, this teacher did this, you know, we learned this from our students. So I think part of it too is kind of reframing and thinking about like, what did we gain actually? What did we become better at? And how do we utilize that moving forward? And your, your staff is an incredible job. Um, last thing I'm gonna ask you, when we first met, uh, you know, I'm a big Raptors fan and you can see my We The North hat and your Celtics just knocked my Raptors out. Now my Raptors didn't even make the playoffs this year, right? So, cause we're like, just we're tanking on purpose cause we want to get a good lottery pick. Uh, but the Celtics just got knocked out of the playoffs and then they got rid of their GM, right? Danny Ainge, or at least president. I don't know if he's president or whatever. Uh, they got rid of their coach who moved up, right? 
So this is going to be, this is like going to be on wax by the time I'm going to ask you your guess, who's going to be the next head coach of the Boston Celtics. And by the time this is, is up, we'll know if your answer is right or not, because this is being pre-recorded. So who I, had my, I was just talking about this uh, last night and I just want to disappoint you, George, you're not going to get Cade Cunningham. He's not going to the Toronto Raptors. Whatever. Okay. Whatever. But uh, I believe if I had, my, if I was playing GM for the day for the Boston Celtics, uh, my next head coach would be Chauncey Billups. Chauncey Billups. Chauncey Billups. So do you know? Okay, do you know okay, Cha- Chauncey Billups would be great. I did, did. Does he coach anywhere right now? I no. Last time I think Chauncey is still doing some TV work. Uh, I don't know if he's coaching, but what I like about Chauncey was hmm. if you remember his career. Oh, I do, I'm a Lakers fan too, so I'm not a. I I don't like Chauncey Billups because they beat the yeah. Pistons. They lost to the Pistons. Lakers. He's incredible. Well, he, he was drafted by the Celtics by Rick Pitino. He was a top okay. five pick. He struggled early on. Uh, I think he took a little while to adjust to the NBA game. Got traded early on in his career. I think he got traded to Denver. Okay. And then again, I think it took, I think it took him about three to five years to finally find his groove. And yeah. then when he went then so again, he's had his struggle in the NBA, which that to me, a lot that's how you build and develop players because I mean, good coaches know the work that it takes to be successful in the league. And I think Chauncey has that pedigree. And then Chauncey also played with those great, those great, great, great Piston teams that knocked out those Lakers, right? With Rip Hamilton. And uh, they had that Ben Wallace, I believe. Ben Wallace, yeah, Rasheed yeah. Wallace is on that team too. And again, that really, that exemplified a team. Yeah. They did not have that one superstar. They were pretty... Much You're amazing. well balanced. So I would I would say Chauncey. They actually went to the finals again. They lost to I think San Antonio uh, later, and they were just they never had a superstar. It was like it's totally different from. Uh, but so the so there's two things I want to share with you. First of all, the the rumor right now is Mike Shashevsky from Duke. That's the rumor that's going on. I don't think that's going to happen, but we'll know by the time this is uh, if it's wrong. But yesterday. And I don't know if you know this guy. This has nothing. It's not to do with the coach. Uh, yesterday in uh, on Twitter, Masai Ajuri was actually trending. So I don't know if you know who Masai Ajuri is, but he is the brains behind the Toronto Raptors, and he's a free agent. And he was trending because the Celtics want him so bad. And if Masai Ajuri goes to the Celtics and leaves the Raptors, I will never talk to you again. I will be so. He is like. He is the, the greatest. He is like, basically, he is the most important Raptor of all time. Is That's what is I believe. He, I agree. He's he, a guy is he a coach or GM? He, he's the, I, I don't know if he's the GM or the president of basketball operations, but he is like, basically runs everything. He is the most brilliant mind. And if the Celtics steal him from the Raptors, I will never talk to you again. I will be so upset about it. That's it. I'll send you a, I'll send you a Celtics jersey with Cabral <laughs> on the <laughs> All right. All right. Hey, John, it was awesome to have you on the podcast. And uh, for anyone who wants to follow John, uh, I'll link down to where he is on social media. You're on Twitter, right, John? I know you're there. Uh, I'm on Twitter with the Tom Public Schools. So that's perfect. So um, thanks for all you do. Shout out to uh, your amazing staff because I have loved working with them.
Gotta give them a special shout out. So I don't know. They, I wonder if any of them are gonna watch this, but uh, I know how I know how proud you are of them, and that uh, I just I can feel that every time I talk to you because I know that you're proud of how great a job your, your staff has done this year. So thanks everyone for listening, John. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. And George, I just want to say thank you for your work and support of Taunton Public Schools. I mean, your messages to start the year and mid year. No, we're instrumental and helped us get, help us do this work. So thank you, George. Uh, blessed to be with you all. Have a wonderful day, everyone.